Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Ruven Mann. Rabbi Mann received semicha from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University and a master's degree from Bernard Revel Graduate School. His entire professional career has been dedicated to the perpetuation of Judaism as both pulpit rabbi and Jewish educator. He has taught Torah to every age level from elementary school students to advanced graduates. Over his 40-year career, he has served as a pulpit rabbi in communities from New York to Arizona and has been a guest lecturer and scholar-in-residence at many yeshivot, synagogues, and universities across America and Israel. Additionally, Rabbi Man was co-founder of Yeshiva B'nai Torah and served there as a Manahel and Magid Shior. He is the author of Eternally Yours, God's Greatest Gift to Mankind. At present, he resides in Jerusalem and gives a weekly Tanakh Shior at Mikdal. Without further ado, Rabbi Reuven Mann. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. In your book, Eternally Yours on Genesis, you make a fascinating observation that most religions and political, intellectual, and social movements trace themselves back to a single founder. Yet as, a, as great as Abraham was, his legacy is shared by his family. You also pointed out that we don't believe in sainthood in the Christian sense, but in the fallibility of our leaders and that we must only believe in God. Can you please expand on this section about Avraham and the related lessons we can learn? Yes, I thought that was a significant thing because I don't know if anybody's noticed that or made that point so much before, but all the other major religions and indeed major movements, whether they're religious, philosophical, and so forth, always hinge upon some charismatic figure. And um, Judaism is not like that. It's true we need leaders because they pave the way and uh, teachers, rabbis, instructors, but ultimately Judaism is a system of true ideas. And the reason why we should follow it is because these ideas essentially are endorsed by Hashem, by God. That's the idea of revelation. And, um, even the, the the revelation itself is something, not all of it. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying all of the Torah could have been established uh, and discovered by man. There are many mitzvot in the Torah, which we may not even understand. But essentially, the, the Torah is a rational, intelligible, intelligent system, which already makes it uh, unique among the religions, with the objective of directing man towards his ultimate purpose. The Torah is really about <clears throat> human perfection <clears throat> on the individual and collective level. And it's part of our faith, it's part of our amuna that such a state of existence where the entire world is serving God properly and therefore there's great peace and great abundance, that's part of our amuna that that will come into being at a certain time because that's exactly what God created the world for at the present time. The world is steep with false, false, false religious ideals, and uh, therefore the um, you have the various groups, and it's a matter of them being triumphant over other groups, and that's why you have religious wars, because it's not really directed towards the ultimate goal, which is the pursuit of truth, which leads us to a appreciation and awareness and an appreciation of God. And, and, and hence, human perfection comes as a result of that. So therefore, it's not rooted in one particular person. Because then you'd say that, oh, Avram, he's the one. 
if I could just be like Avram, then everything will be fine. It's not the case. As we see, the, 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 what about the issue of fallibility? You see that in the, you read the stories about Avraham and Sarah, and you see that they had disagreements. I mean, if they were, uh, if they were infallible, then how could you have disagreements? That is, it's Sarah who discovers that Yishmael can become a problem in terms of the ongoing movement. When she sees the way he's behaving uh, at the time that Yitzchak, um, they're celebrating uh, Yitzchak's being weaned and so forth. So she recognizes that it's a problem and, and Avram is going to have to just separate himself from Hagar and Yishmael. And, that, and the Torah says the matter was very um, painful to Avram. He didn't want to do that. That wasn't, he didn't agree with that idea, but then Hashem intervenes. Hashem intervenes. See, and, and, and tells him, whatever Sarah tells you in this matter, listen to her. It's an amazing thing. You're not going to find it in, in other religions. First of all, where are you going to find that the woman in those days, in that time, is telling her husband what to do, disagreeing with him. And he, he disagrees, but then God intervenes and says she's right. Because it's a religion of truth. It's a religion of ideas. It's not about a man. It's not about a woman. Uh, it's not about any particular race. It's about the knowledge of God. And uh, that's why we have role models. It's not that this charismatic person has that thing that we need to have. No, there are different people. When these people embrace those ideas, when, when they embrace those ideas and the way of living and the way of dealing with their problems and issues, that um, is the, the derach Hashem. That's the correct path. That's the path that Hashem has endorsed. So they will, they will become role models for us. Okay? But it's not a role model. You see also, for example, you see the Ramban criticizes. The Ramban criticizes Avram because he left Eretz Yisrael. He left the land of Israel when there was a famine. And then when he came into Egypt, he recognizes that the fact that Sarah is so beautiful is going to create a problem for him because that's the corrupt kind of a society and they're going to be attracted to her and they're going to want to take her for themselves and therefore they'll kill him because he's the husband. So he decides what he embraces a certain strategy and that is that she should say that she's his sister and that changes the entire thing. Now, the Ramban is extremely critical of Abraham on this. He says he was wrong to leave the land. He should have had faith that Hashem will take care of him in a famine. And he says that he was also wrong in um, putting Sarah in danger by saying that she was the sister. Now, most of the commentaries disagree with the Ramban. It's considered to be a very difficult Ramban. And I remember Rabbi Hirsch, Tim from Farl Hirsch. He has a lengthy introduction to this and he wants to make the point. Before he defends Avram, he said, I'm not saying that Avram is perfect. <laughs> I'm not saying that uh, he can't make any mistakes. You see from the fact that the Ramban criticizes him that he's not infallible. I think the Ramban would know if we were to regard the Avot, you know, the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs as infallible. But the mere fact that he criticizes him shows you that, that he's not to be regarded that way. He is a human being. And the essence of a human being is fallibility. He's subject to trial and error. He's subject to mistakes. And when he makes a mistake and it's pointed out to him, he acknowledges it. Now, I don't, I mean, I'm not, it's not right for me to say I don't agree with the Ramban. I'm not on that level to talk that way. But, but Rabbi Hirsch says, but, and in this particular case, 
He says, Abraham was not wrong. And he defends what Abraham did. So you have a whole discussion. But it all is centered about the possibility, the idea that Abraham being, if he was not, then we really couldn't learn anything from him either. I mean, if he was some type of an angelic being, then he wasn't fully human. What is the point? The point is to have role models that we who are human beings, we can learn from. So we could learn, we, we could see what they did right. We could see what their challenges were, how they, they reacted. A person that's imbued with that approach to life, that a conviction about the existence of God and what the moral course is, how does he deal with these problems that he confronts in his life? Ah, so then that, that's the idea. That's what the Torah portrays for us, the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs until we come to the, uh, you know, Yaakov is the last of the Avos, of the patriarchs, and then you have the uh, the so-called Shifteka, the tribes of God. These are the 12 sons of Yaakov who were to become the, uh, the heads, uh, the leaders of the constituent elements of the Jewish people, the tribes. Were they perfect in that way? Were they perfect in that way? Oh, absolutely this? <laughs> Describing the whole conflict with Yosef. And was Yosef perfect? Did he not make mistakes? Did Yaakov... The rabbis say this. The rabbis say that when ya Yaakov favored, he, he demonstrated his favoritism of Yosef, and that was a mistake. Okay, it's a big question, man. How, why would he make such a mistake? I mean, didn't he know that favoritism is dangerous? Okay, we could talk about that. But again, it, it's taken for granted the mere fact that you have these discussions, that the rabbis of the Talmud criticized Yaakov and said that you should never um, uh, do that. You should never uh, single out any child for special affection because it's going to cause jealousy. The fact, the fact that they say that in the case that they, they had no compunctions, they weren't operating with this idea that the uh, uh, vote are perfect in that way. So it's a religion of ideas. It's a religion of, of knowledge. Why it is that in the contemporary attitude has changed and now we've put a certain aura on them that they're not, you know, they're not ordinary human beings and so on and so forth. To me, it's a tremendous distortion of Torah. And makes it virtually, to me, it makes it virtually impossible. So what can you learn from them? I do see that trend. I see that tendency in some of the contemporary biographies of Gedolim. I don't know if you're familiar with them. If, if you read the, the art scroll type of a uh, biography, it, it tends to treat the Gedolim in that way. That, and you get the sense you get the sense that from childhood, they were simply perfect. And they naturally, you know, did they always did the right thing and always learned, uh, never wasted a minute. It presents a certain, it's just not realistic. In many cases, it's not realistic. I, I know it's not a simple matter to write a biography of a god because you have to be very careful. It's not a simple matter, but it's very, it's not, in my opinion, it's not accurate and it's not that useful if you're going to portray someone in that way, which I don't think conforms to reality. You, you mentioned at the very beginning that you described the Torah as a rational system uh, aimed at perfection. Can you demonstrate, um, can you demonstrate that? How, how can one view the Torah as a rational system aimed at self-perfection? Examples of how that would work. Okay, so let me take something <clears throat> which most people would not regard as um, rational, um, which most people would say that uh, we have to do it. It's a uh, divine decree. And that is 
the laws of Kashrut. Okay, uh, that you know Jews are are not permitted to eat whatever they want. You can't eat all kinds of meat. You can't eat all kinds of fish. And so there's a whole system determining what you can eat and what you can't eat. And the same is true with regard to the um, sexual uh, pro sexual prohibitions. Uh, women that are permitted to you, women that are not permitted to you. And even within the framework of um, marriage, your wife, I mean... <laughs> we'll pause for a second. I forgot to put it on air. Yeah, hi, Jakey. Jacob, is everything all right? Is everything all right? All right, don't call me back. I'll call you because I'm involved. In, I'm being interviewed now. Okay, so don't inter Okay, I'll talk to you later. Take care, bye. That's my son. Supposedly, he's going to propose to his girlfriend. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. So um, it's, a, it's a few hours yet. Of course, it's, he's in um, New Jersey, New York, New Jersey. But um, I just wanted to make sure everything's okay. No problem. Air, I got an airplane mode. That's it. It's airplane mode. It shouldn't ring. Okay. Okay. So I paused, if you noticed, before I... Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So, excuse me. So getting, okay. getting, getting back to that issue... Um, so many people have, think that there's no real logical or rational reason why would the, why we we permitted to eat this but not permitted to, to eat that. And indeed, indeed, I mean it's a it's a very good question because isn't religion all about morality? The the moral laws of the Torah definitely are rational. That is that uh, the Torah goes to a tremendous extent. The um, you shall love your friend as yourself. That means any fellow Jew, you have an obligation to love him as yourself. That requires a discussion. And what, what does that mean? What kind of love are we talking about? And so on and so forth. But everybody loves to hear that. I used to give classes in Phoenix at the uh, one of the local colleges. And um, they were studying uh, world literature and ancient religions. So I happened to know the professor. When it came time to religion or something about Judaism, he called me in. So, and then, then subsequently, I would give uh, guest classes over there. So I used to have a lot of fun with them. You know, they turn, are there any Jews in the, no, there wasn't like one Jew in the uh, class. And essentially, mostly they were all uh, Christian. So I was giving them a little, you know, review, basic idea about Judaism. So then I said to them, which religion teaches that you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, Christianity, they all, you know, popped I said, open up your uh, Bibles. And I took them to the, um, the Pusik in um, Bayikra. Okay. And I asked somebody to read. All right, you should not bear a grudge. And you shall love your friend as yourself. I said, well, oh, that's the Jewish Bible. You know, that just goes that they were stunned, you know, like uh, they, they took it for granted. Incredible. So everybody recognizes, everybody recognizes the rationality of the, uh, the compassion of the laws of the Torah, the justice, and so on and so forth. The, the, the question comes up with regard to what we would call the, the religious or the ritualistic, okay? Hukim so, statutes, yeah. so you have kashrut. Yes, it's a good question. Why can't I be a moral, good person, and who cares what I eat? What difference does that make? Does that make me a bad person if I eat pork or something like that? 
So I always tell people that I will, you know, I guarantee you, I can prove to you the rationality of these laws. You may not agree with it, you may not want to keep it, but I'll show you why it makes perfect sense. And the basic idea is that the Rambam, in his code of Jewish law, he incorporated the laws of Kashrut and the laws of forbidden sexual relations in one, he had, you know, he, he broke it up into books, very, what he called Sefer, right. Sfarim. And this was the book of holiness. Okay, so what did the two things have in common? To make a long story short, essentially, it means to say that man cannot live his life like an animal. The principle, the animalistic principle, which many, many people govern their lives by, is that their behavior is determined by their desires, by their instincts, by their desires. If I want something, so that's how an animal functions. An animal does not have a filter. If it desires something, it I can't think it over. Well, maybe it's not really good for me and so on and so forth. Then I won't do it. Now, as long as it has a desire and that thing is available, it's going to go after that thing. Man, however, cannot live that way. That's not a human way of life. A human way of life is where a person is in a state of control over his instincts. And you have to be trained. For, for, uh, the two major instincts in man would be the appetitive, eating, as we can see. Take a look at our society. One of the biggest health problems in this society is obesity. It's a fact. And that contributes to, to a person's lifespan. That's a very serious, serious type of thing where people can't, can't and, and drugs and, and drinking and so on and so forth because see, there's no holiness in the society because people are trained to be animals. That's what it is, pleasure. Just pursue pleasure. And it doesn't matter. Of course, you're going to pay for it. Well, you're going to pay for it when you get older. And, and, and you know, it's going to bite you. But the Torah is teaching you, it's training you to live a life which is based upon, it doesn't, not, not repression. It's not saying, the Torah does not believe in repression. That is to say, it doesn't believe that evil. It doesn't believe that pleasure is evil, as most of the other religions do. Judaism does not believe that at all. The Ramam writes about this in the laws of Deus. And he says, some people go to an extreme and uh, they, they give up all kinds of pleasure and uh, they don't need any food that's pleasant or enjoyable. He says, that's an evil path. That is the path of the idolaters. But no, a person, see, a person is human, and we do need certain gratifications. You do need certain instinctual gratifications. If a person says, I'm not going to, I'm going to give up sex. I'm not going to have any sex in my life. According to the Ramam, that's wicked. It's wicked. Because you, God created you in a certain way. You're not an angel. That is, an angel is, is pure intellect without a body. But you are Essentially, your essence is the neshama, is the divine soul, whose main purpose is to obtain understanding. But you are established in a human form. That's how you have to live your life. You have needs. You can't live your life without eating. And it's not just eating. If a person were just to have the essentials, you put it into a pill, and he would have the essential nutrients, he'd be miserable because there is a psychological component in eating. And if you're going to deprive... You can diminish that, and it's wise to try and diminish that, so you're not a slave. That's the point of holiness, to live a life which is based upon the ability to be intelligent and to gratify your needs in a manner of moderation. That's kashrut. So God set up a system. God set up a system. And he, the only God can determine how much is okay to have, how much 
how many animals have to be removed. Oh, so we have split hooves, chew the cud. There's many other secondary reasons why that makes sense, because these are basically domesticated animals that are easy to obtain, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go through the particulars, through the whole system, but the idea behind it is the same thing with the sexual. That's another area that's completely... This, I, I used to... During the time when you had the AIDS crisis, back in the 90s, right? And after that, so, uh, you know, and, and much of it had to do with reckless sexual behavior, much of it. I'm not saying all, well, because it also had to do with needles, with drugs. So two very serious vices contributed to it. It wasn't like cancer, for example. Most of the time, most of the time, if a person gets cancer, it's not something you really could control. I mean, it, there may be certain forms of cancer that are due to how you live, behavioral, and what you eat, and so on and so forth. By, by and large, I don't think that um, a, a person can um, avoid, for, some, for many people, it's a genetic. There are certain diseases like that. So no matter how healthy you live, um, you're gonna be subjected to certain types of things. But in the case of AIDS, for example, the bulk of it was caused by, um, human behaviors, recklessness, recklessness in terms of drugs and recklessness in terms of uh, sex. Yeah. So you wonder, like, and it was such a horrifying type of a disease. Uh, and now they have more treatments in whatever the case, um, HIV, they have treatments and so on and so forth. But I don't know about AIDS, if it turns into AIDS, I think it's still, still kind of lethal. Then they had, then they had no treatments at all and also it became a big problem we have to allocate funds we have to discover a cure i was look if people are sick they're sick and if you can't just say well i'm not going to bother trying to find the cure because it's their fault but i was thinking wouldn't this scare people off now that people know about the horrors so wouldn't it scare them off at least to no. practice safe sex so practice safe sex <laughs> i'm not coming at you and saying you know, be moral and, and then don't practice sex at all. Okay, so no one's going to listen. But I'd imagine you're scared enough so that you practice safe sex. No. No. Because the uh, the instinct, the emotions, the need to have gratification and have it immediately is so powerful that uh, it, uh, it... It hijacks the brain. It hijacks the brain. It hijacks the brain. Yeah. Not to mention drugs. Yep. So when you think Smoking about that, drugs, is, all of these this other is things. not this is a society that desperately needs a code of holiness. <laughs> desperately needs to be to keep kosher, to be trained. As opposed, you have a, you have the Jewish people and their children that they're, they're trained from day one. No, we can't have this. We're going out. You go into a ball game. You're hungry. They're eating a hot dog. No, we can't have that. We can't have that. That's also, a wonderful thing. Also, like uh, yeah, like the. Uh, Peru, which is like be fruitful, and, be fruitful and multiply, is the first commandment that we're given. Um, it, it shows that God wants us to live a life that involves some type of sexual activity. Absolutely. But but what what people don't understand, like for example, for Christians, it's the ideal if you could be celibate. That's the ideal. Where sex is like a necessary evil. Um, and the the reason why I think the Torah is so beautiful is that we're pretty much allowed to do everything, but just in moderation. So in Islam, for example, they don't drink alcohol in Judaism, and they find it strange that Jews drink. But we, you know, every every holiday we're supposed to have wine, Shabbat, we're supposed to have wine, but it's always like 
in moderation and we're not allowed to abuse alcohol. So I think the fact that we are allowed to do, we're allowed to do things and we do things in moderation. For example, one other example, which I think is very beautiful is Nida, right? We, we have to, for two weeks out of the month, we have to separate from our wives and we have to kind of, um, re kind of rekindle the relationship without physicality and it keeps things fresh. And when, you, when people understand what it means, they're like, wow, that's such a rational, um, amazing thing. It's such a beautiful thing that people just don't know about, um, who aren't Jewish, obviously. So, um, I think there's a lot to that, but I want to ask you on a related note, um, cause Rambam and Ramban, obviously there's a disagreement regarding the Nazir, right? Mm. Um, where, Nachmanides takes the approach that that is kind of the ideal. Um, and the Rambam says it's it's not the ideal. That's why there's we, we bring yeah, a korban. Bring a korban yeah. At the end, they both... And then Ramban actually says that they bring a korban because they had to stop being a Nazir. So it's almost like a completely different attitude. So I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. Well, it's not, it's not um, necessarily a, a disagreement. I think there's room for both... There's validity to both positions. Um, because when we're talking about moderation, uh, what exactly is moderation? Depends on who you talk, there's a subjective element. Because some people, it be, some people's needs, it's, it is relative, it has to be for you. Uh, for another person, that might be indulgence, for, but, but for a person with those needs, that could, that could be considered moderation. So the, the point of the, of the Rambam is that in the system of nazir, where the person is giving something up, which is a pleasurable thing, essentially wine, that he's giving up wine. And so he's he's saying that there's a danger. There's a danger because people might think that there's something positive about renunciation itself. And that is God doesn't want you to enjoy something. And that's how people look at it. That's probably more the view of Christianity, but many Jews too, that if you inflict pain upon yourself, that, that's a very primitive idea, that if you inflict pain upon yourself, so then you'll, you'll be forgiven uh, for your sins. Or that's something which is um, uh, worthwhile in, in the eyes of God. So therefore, the, the, one of the functions of Nazir, as the Ramam says, is that it's uh, to counter when a person has gone to the extreme of indulgence. So it's not enough to simply go back to moderation. He may have to go to the other extreme, even though he's taught us that we should not go to extremes that's not the correct position, but there are situations in life where as a therapeutic measure, you have to go to the other extreme, <laughs> which we know. I mean, you know, when a person is, I, I, I assume we giving up smoking, okay, giving up drugs and so on and so forth. So sometimes you just have to cold turkey. You just have to go. You can't, you know, you, you can't just cut down from 10 cigarettes to nine cigarettes. Okay, so you just have to give it up and the body will adjust. It'll be painful for a short while and then the body will start to, Adjust. That's one idea. However, there's another idea. What, what about if a person is able to elevate himself to a higher level of Kedusha? And he, and, and he, he can um, take withdraw the energy that has been, you know, going out to certain um, emotional areas and he can redirect that to a higher goal. Let's say you have somebody like the Vilna Gone that can sit and learn like a uh, 20 hours a day or something like that. Okay, so he doesn't have to, for somebody else, that's impossible. He can't, he needs time, he should go for exercise, he should do other, he should do things in moderation. Yeah, but but there are, there is such a thing as an individual who's able to focus all of his energy 
to harness all of his energy in learning and ideas and so on and so forth. That would, that would appear to be an extreme to somebody else. But, but that's also a good. I think that's what the Ramban is saying, is that sometimes a person has the ability to, um, not to, it's not that he gives up certain pleasures, but he removes the energy from those areas. So let's say, uh, you know, let's, let's say us, let's say uh, you guys, let's say myself. You know, we like to watch a football game on Sunday, let's say. Okay, and we need it because it's recreation. It's legitimate recreation. You need the recreation. And then you, then you feel better. You, had a, you, got, you know, it's an outlet. You got some of that energy out of your system. And now you can go back and do more learning, whatever the case may be. So if somebody tells you, well, you know, you should stop watching football because it's about three hours and you're wasting your time. What's, what's productive about that? You're not learning anything you could be learning. I would, I, you know, I would say, no, leave them alone because this is productive. Why? Because as a result of that, you feel rejuvenated. Recalibrate. If you were to, I'm sorry? It recalibrates you. Yeah, like, and if you yeah. were to take that away from a person, that would be bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, but let, let me ask another question, though. Let's say you keep, you keep elevating yourself in your learning and so on and so forth. And there comes a time when the football is not really that enjoyable anymore. I'm mentioning this because I went through that phase, and, you know, when I was much, much younger. I used to look forward. I learned a lot, Shiva and all that. And then on, on Sunday, I, I enjoyed the, um, the games. But then I reached a point where it just wasn't as enjoyable as a, as a Gemara. You know, your mind is always making comparisons. Uh, which pleasure? Which gives you more pleasure? So um, it just wasn't as rewarding or emotionally enjoyable. I remember there was a time when I'd watched the game and I'd have a Gemara in my head. So I was working it because I noticed the, the whole game is 60 minutes. Right? It has four quarters, each one is 15 minutes. You have two, have three hours you could actually learn. Right, right. I mean, why is it, why is a 60 minute game taking three hours? So, I, so I'd watch the play and then I go back to the um, Gemara. Okay, then I look up again. I, I, and, and often I, I would miss the play because I was involved in the Gemara. But then I noticed there's a replay. <laughs> so, so who cares? I'm just trying to say it reached a point where I wasn't able to really enjoy it that much. So I stopped, you know, stopped watching and I did more learning. But that was not, you see, that was not um, denying myself. That was not denying. It just is a natural development of taking energy that's being utilized in a lower form of activity and redirecting it to a higher activity. So that I think is also true of the Nazir. That, that sometimes it's important for a person to set aside a time where he could, he could be on a high level. If he wasn't wasting his time with drinking and getting together and this and that, he could be doing more. So in that sense, it's different than how that's it's different than how the Rambam, it could be both. For certain people, it's a therapy. For certain people, it's not. It's an, it's an opportunity to elevate yourself to a higher level. Then it teaches the idea that you bring a carbon because if you were able to attain a higher level, uh, then you shouldn't just quickly, you shouldn't just abandon it and go back to a lower level. It's teaching that idea. I mean, I don't know what the particular search, sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes you get like a, a month or two months vacation you could sit and learn and so on and so forth but then you have no choice you have to go back okay but it's teaching that idea that there should be a certain regret when that occurs because you do recognize that that was a higher level of existence beautiful beautiful very nice awesome okay 
So you mentioned that Avraham went to great lengths in order to destroy the spiritual disease of idolatry, of which Maimonides says the entire purpose of Torah is to uproot idolatry from the world. Please elaborate on this idea, and what would you say to those who claim idolatry has already been uprooted from our midst? I'm assuming that's referring to the Gemara. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the Gemara that the Chachamim did away with uh, with idolatry, specifically from the perspective of observant Jews. Okay. Um, I, I Part one is, as we've said, that the objective of the Torah is for human perfection and the pillar, the pillar upon which everything else rests is one's recognition of Hashem. And it, it's most important that we don't distort the idea of Hashem, even though we can't really understand God, God is infinite, we can't understand, Moshe wanted to see the essence of God and Hashem said he can't see it as long as he's alive. But still in all, we want to have as accurate and an understanding of, of Hashem as is humanly possible. Therefore, this because this is the most important concept in terms of our perfection. We are supposed to emulate Hashem. Okay? That, that's why you're not allowed to idolize a human being, because then you're going to emulate him. That's going to take you away from seeking to know God. That therein, the, the more of an understanding of Hashem the more of an appreciation of his wonders. That, that, that experience itself is transformative. That's religious. That's the most religious experience of all. So there can't be any distortion of that. And what was destroying mankind was the fact that people had completely distorted that and they substituted the actual God. They substituted that with idols. What are idols? Idols are projections. You project because the motivation, the people say they're religious. Yeah, why, why are people, why are most people religious? It resides in the insecurity of man. If people, and you've seen it in, in the past, what was the big sin of the Dorhamabal, the generation of the flood? What caused all that? Because they didn't feel insecure. They felt very secure because they were powerful. They, they lived over a thousand years. And this is from Chazal. Chazal said, the Gemara said, and uh, they, were the, they weren't afraid of any animal. They were the most powerful creature on earth. In fact, that's why, Rabbi Chate explained, that's why afterward, with the new covenant after the flood, Hashem says he's going to place the fear of man in the animals. But why not before? <laughs> why not before? Because before there was no need. Because since man was the most powerful creature, no, he could tear leopards apart with his hands. So there was no need to place the fear of um of man in the animals. But afterwards, see the whole objective of the flood, afterwards, things changed. It wasn't just eliminating the sinners, but the whole climate, everything, climactic changes took place, uh, all, all with the objective of weakening man. So he wasn't such a, a big shot anymore. And um, that's why the lifespans, the lifespans go down and now man begins to experience weakness and illness and so on and so forth. So God set it up the conditions that his ego should never ever reach that level where he doesn't, he doesn't need God anymore. We become, he becomes so haughty and arrogant that he does whatever he wants. The truth of the matter is, and that's something we should be concerned about because modern man is returning to that attitude of haughtiness because with technology, he's, he's kind of found a way in which he can get around the natural... Um, inhibitions and weaknesses 
that are part of the creation through his technology. He has this tremendous might because of nuclear weapons and he can go to the moon. So that's always a danger, that it should not go to his head and give him that feeling of omnipotence. When man begins to feel a sense of omnipotence, there's tremendous uh, danger ahead. So that what prevented people from recognizing the truth was this system of idolatry, which catered to man's religious emotions. Religious emotions aren't really necessarily that religious. It's basically man's insecurity. Man, he's living in a world where he's insecure. And even today, uh, you know, you walk out of the house, you don't know what's going to happen. There could be uh, an earthquake and so on and so forth. So he's looking for a source of security, and which may, may, may be not realistic. The only security, the only security you can have is, is because of your relationship to Hashem. But let me just finish the point. In his search, in his search for security, he creates idols. Those idols are figments of his imagination, and he projects human qualities onto those idols and emotions. And if he can find favor with those idols, they're going to protect him. The whole thing, I mean, it sounds it sounds primitive. It is primitive. And it sounds almost ridiculous. How can anybody believe that? But that that becomes firmly established. It becomes the religion of the society. And uh, it prevents people from ever discovering the actual God. Yes. Yeah, you so wanted to say something. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. say something regarding the, the, the end of the question was about observant Jews. Because a lot of Jews will think like, well, adultery doesn't exist today. Nobody bows to sticks and stones and statues anymore. But there is a more kind of, in my opinion... And the opinion of many others is that their idolatry today is a lot more sophisticated than it used to be because now it's intellectualized idolatry where it's idolatry of the mind so we could even turn certain religious rituals into idolatrous practices and to me that's the most kind of dangerous um idolatry because it almost seems like there's a um it's it's it almost seems like it's approved by god so um do you have any thoughts on that yeah, no, there's no question about that. Because idolatry is not just about bowing down to an idol, but it's a certain magical way of thinking. It's a certain approach to the divine. And that involves magical thinking, mystical thinking, uh, a certain belief, a certain um, superstitiousness. Superstitiousness is part of this whole thing. Um, because if you touch, if you do certain gestures, and so on and so forth, it has cosmic consequences. I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, a few months ago, I was in New Jersey. I have two of my sons live in New Jersey. Um, so we, we went there and um, coming back. So coming back, I'm on the, you know, they have all the planes now, the crowded, generally speaking, especially to Israel, you know, like uh, virtually every seat is taken. And that's what they said, you know. Um, so I'm sitting, I, I always get an aisle seat, I'm sitting in my aisle seat, and then so, across the, um, by the window seat, the middle seat is still empty at this point. And uh, there's this Haredi guy, you know, and um, yeah, we said hello, whatever, just uh, basic common courtesy. Now, as the plane is filling up and we're reaching the point where they're gonna close the doors, so the middle seat, the seat next to me had not been taken. So I'm beginning <laughs> to hope, you know, that'd be great. It's a long flight to Israel, and you know, it's, there's hardly any room, and it's a real, you know, then you have the floor space, you have another trade table, I mean, it's really, and the and, and seat itself, it, it's a big luxury. So I was looking at the uh, guy, 
the guy at the window, for, and he noticed that. And I was starting to say, well, you know, we met. And she told me, shh. <laughs> like, he shushed me up. Like, don't say anything. Because if I say it, I could jinx it. You know, so it's really like, I thought it's not going to work that way. You know, you can say all you want. If there's no person that's, uh, you know, has that seat, that will be okay. <laughs> turned, it turned out that, um, that um, we did have that seat. So that was a, a big boon. But I, I'm just saying that's the attitude. I'm not saying that this person is up, but that's part of his religious attitude that he really believes. And it's very superstitious. You see that religious people, super from people, have all these have all these uh, superstitious things. Uh, the Ayin Hara and this and that. You're going to ward off, and and they would. That is a idolatrous way of thinking. It's not. It's not rational. Again, it's because underneath it all, you're looking for protections, and those those protections are determined by your magical way of thinking, not by your rational way of thinking. So you do see. I mean, you see a lot of these things, uh, one of them, these customs, like Schlüsselchale, you know, like after, um, after Pesach, I think it's after Pesach. So the first chale you bake, you put the key in it, um, right? And then you put it over the door, but something like that. Things that have no, I mean, the complete negation of any natural order, of the laws of nature. And that is still... In my opinion, those types of practices, that belief system takes you away. Because as long as you believe that, you're not going to search for the real wisdom of Torah. The real, the real good of the Torah is precisely in this area. God is communicating to us ideas that we should govern our lives by. And these ideas will enable us to be successful and happy in this world. And as a result, we'll have the world to come. And the Torah does maintain that there's Hashkacha. We'll become more eligible, so to speak, for God's protection for Hashkacha. But that, what's, what's so significant is the belief that the Torah is a system of ideas and truth. And my whole goal is to discover those truths and to implement them in my life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the doctrine that all people are created in God's image and are thus entitled to be treated with compassion, which is a major tenet of Judaism. What does Telem Elohim entail, and how does it implore us to take action, especially in regards to justice and compassion? Well, Telem Elohim is, again, one of the most important concepts of the Torah. And that's stated at the outset in Veracious. And I don't think people in the world appreciate this is, again, another contribution that Judaism has given to the world. Because that means to say that man is different. Man is different than all other living beings, different than the animals that do not possess a Elohim. That means, in addition to the instinctual makeup of man, there's a separate element, which is kind of like an image, so to speak, of Hashem. Not in a literal sense, but it means there's something in man that partakes of Hashem, that, that is the capacity for understanding. That God created a world and the world is filled with ideas. It works according to laws and precision. And there's an element in man, man is the only being that has the ability to conceptualize what these laws are and to use them to his advantage. That's, that's what accounts for all the progress 
There's no, there's no animal that has any real progress that's developed anything. It's only man. Where does that come from? Take a look at how the world was a few thousand years ago and how it is today. Could we have ever, who would have dreamed, say, 100 years ago that we'd be having this conversation? I'm sitting here in Israel and you guys are in America. And uh, we have a screen and we're talking to each other. It's like we're in the same room. It would have been insane. That's a tribute. That's a tribute that the Hashem created the world. That, that, that these laws that make this possible are there. They're discoverable. And he puts something in man that when he opens it up and, and uses that, he can discover these things and use it to his, to his advantage. That's the significance of man, that he's a reflection of the creator. And that leads to the result that you have to treat each human being with respect because he's a reflection of the creator. He has that potential. He has that capacity. You can't treat him like an animal. It's a very, very important point. Judaism respects all people. We don't look down, so to speak, on Goyim. We don't look down on blacks, any kind of that whole thing. You know, what people disparage because um, of race, races, making fun out of people and all of that, or even making fun out of uh, gay people. Okay, so homosexual behavior is prohibited by the Torah. Okay, but that doesn't give you a right to make fun out of a person. If a person happens to be gay, first of all, there's no sin in being gay. I want to make that clear. It's only certain behaviors that the Torah, that the, the Torah has prohibited. If a person is gay, that's his nature. But, but uh, he doesn't act on it in that way. He hasn't violated any way. The contrary, he's a big tzad. He's a, he's, a, he's a righteous individual. But I'm saying to make fun out of that person or any other person because of anything, anything like that, what we would call accidents, he's black, he's Asian, and so on. He has Selma Lakim. That's his essence. That would, that would mean that behaving in a racist, type of a manner would be a violation of the Torah because you're violating the Tzalem Elohim factor. So that's an extremely important concept. I, I don't know that the world appreciates that. That Today it's kind of like accepted, you know, not always, it's okay to be anti-Semitic, but the, the other types of bigotries, you know, uh, but they don't really give the full explanation behind it, why that's the case. And certainly they don't, um, this, this should be another reason for thanking the Jews, because the Jews gave you the Torah, and that's part of the Torah. So that's, that's um, a very, very significant thing. That's the basis of our sanctification of life. That's the basis of our prohibition, prohibition of uh, suicide. And uh, the, the reason why you're obligated to live a healthy life, you have to take care of the body, and so on and so forth, because of Tzalem Elohim. Uh, you have an obligation to live your life in a certain way that you fulfill the will of God in creating you. He didn't create you to be an animal. He created you to live a certain type of a life which makes sense, given that your essence is to be a Tzalem Elohim. That calls for a certain way of life. And Jews have to be in the forefront of demonstrating that way of life. That's, that's how Jews become a light unto the nation. Beautiful. Very nice. Okay. So in the chapter called Tragedy and Triumph, you point out that the Torah does not provide much information about the personal aspects of our great leaders in terms of their physical appearance and emotional makeup. Why is that the case, considering the many great non-biblical works of wisdom utilize those, those aspects to paint a picture of their heroic figures? Well, I think that the, the reason that the Torah acts this way is, again, because... 
you see, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. We need these great leaders uh, as role models to look up to. But how are we supposed to relate to them? Not to make heroes, not, not because of personal charisma, not because of a certain style that you're emulating, but rather to learn the ideas that they live by. So if you had a picture, if you had a picture and you had more info about it, you're going to get attracted to the, the personality of Avram, perhaps. That's not what the Torah is interested in. We're not interested in his personality, whether he was funny or not funny. That's not the point. The whole point is to recognize the principles that he lived by and to internalize, to seek to emulate. And it, it goes through, it's very, very rare that you have figures that the Torah is depicting in a way that you wouldn't write a novel this way. If you're going to write a novel, you're going to emphasize all the features, his thoughts, how he dealt with this issue. And so, so a personality is going to emerge. You're going to get a picture of the hero. The Torah is not giving you that. It wants, it, because again, it's not that. It's not like you should, I don't think you can really, it's very hard to, to, to develop that kind of a, a feeling for the biblical heroes. I mean, the deeds, you can appreciate David Amelech having the courage to take on Goliath, Goliath, and, and other things that he did. And then, and then the very same Torah is going to tell you that he, he sinned grievously in the matter of Hashem. Yeah. Whoa, if it, you wanted to, if you, it messes with your, with your projection. Yeah, my goodness. Oh. Just when I, just when you thought it was safe, you know, like, great. Oh no, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. How could it happen? How could he do that? And then what happens? The Navi comes and gives him a dressing down. He had to give him a parable and, uh, uh, about a man who, uh, uh, who was very wealthy and so on and so forth. And his name was very poor and he took that one and he got it. He said, oh, that person should be killed. And uh, then the, the Navi said, that's you. And he got it. Oh, he realized, he realized. So you see, if that's what you're looking for, very, very hard. See, because the hero, the heroic figure of the novel and so on and so forth is depicted in terms of the positives, but not in terms of doing something like that. Just cover up, cover up, cover up. That's why, you see, that's why uh, it's very disturbing in the yeshiva world today and so on and so forth. When, when um, corruption occurs, there's the cover up, the cover up. And that, that creates a greater chul Hashem. Okay, but you see, in Judaism itself does not believe in the cover-up. If you go back to the Torah, you go back to David HaMelech, the Torah was not covering it up. But if, if you have that idea of this uh, extreme sainthood, uh, so what do you do in reality? Gets in the way. So then you got to be dishonest and you got to manipulate the facts. So um, that's my opinion that the Torah is not giving you personalities in that sense. You know, you know uh, it's giving, again, uh, I just wanted to say, based on what you were just saying, I remember that I was talking one time to, I was telling my brother about Shaftai Tzvi. I was talking to him about Shaftai Tzvi, the whole debacle and everything, and uh, a fellow synagogue member got very upset with me. Why are you bringing up such a negative thing? Like, why why, why are you talking about such a dark period in our history? Like, what, what is the point of doing that? Like, why would you say that? Like, people don't like to hear anything negative about anything, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, Judaism, like, you know, to, to, to criticize uh, anything in Judaism becomes like very taboo, very like, you know, 
only say the good, only mention the good things, only mention the positive things. And God forbid we talk about our failures. God forbid. And I think that that's the point you're trying to make. No, that's an excellent point. It's part of the magical thinking. Right? If I if I don't um, acknowledge it, it doesn't exist. It does exist. You know, it's like a very exactly. childish, right? Everything revolves around me. Okay? So if I, you can't say anything negative. If I say it, then somehow or other it's going to happen. And so on. That is a childish uh, way of thinking. It's not realistic. It's not the Torah way. Um, and it's necessary to bring up, if you don't bring up the quote-unquote negative things, then how are you going to make corrections? Then they then they say they're, they're legitimate because nobody ever criticized them and so on and so forth. So you're perpetuating um, falsifications. We have to learn and from the failures as well. We cannot just talk about, you know, the, the saints and just learn off the saints. We have to also look at the failures and we have to, we have to be able to learn from the mistakes. It's part of, it's part of how we grow. And just the further, a further, um, you know, proof of that, just turn to the um, Seder Hayom of Tishabab, and you go through the Kinos, and then you go through the stories in the Gemara, in Gittin. In Gittin, the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, and the Chachamim were there, and they didn't intervene, and, and, and you see that the Gemara is looking back and saying, you know, that he may, you know, he should have asked for this, he should have, Mistakes were made. Why have Tishabov? Tishabov is about all the failures of the past, all the tragedies that were visited upon us and all the failures. And why do you have to mention them? Because we're not there yet. We have to correct our flaws. We have to discover what our flaws were. We have to correct our flaws. We have to face it. But if you're, if you're starting off with that uh, premise that everything is good, we're all tzaddikim, as long as we pretend to be, then you're not going to get there. You're just going to repeat the same things over and over again. Exactly. Yeah, and, and there's two things I want to point out on this, and I want to ask maybe your advice on this, but what would you tell people who have maybe like the Das Torah mentality that like, you know, there's the tzaddik who's perfect in our generation and, and they're almost like saints and they're beyond reproach and beyond questioning uh, because that it seems to become a phenomenon in the last, I don't know, a few hundred years where now like rabbinic figures are almost perfect. And uh, you talk about the Torah leading us towards perfection, which is obviously an impossibility, but it's it's a derech, right? It's a path. Um, what would you say to people who, they, what are you talking about? They didn't actually say, and to make this point even uh, stronger, they point to, let's say, for example, when we question, when we question uh, one, the avot for their, for their sins, and, or the, the commentaries also criticize them, um, they'll say that, you know, it says in the Gemara, that um, David Amalek didn't actually sin in that case. Um, he was there. The, the Gemara is trying to defend, you know, David and say, oh, but Uriah was really a chiti and he was Mored b'malchut and all these different reasons why he wasn't actually a sinner. When in fact, the word that he said is chatati, I sinned. So how do we deal with this kind of pushback from the uh, from today? Well, first of all, it's very important to understand what the Gemara meant. When it said that whoever says David Amel sin is Toa. Um, and the same thing went with Shlomo, that he married uh, so many wives, and that led that led to Avodazar, because when he got older, they pressured him to build these houses of worship in, in Yerushalayim. Now, he wasn't he didn't do Avodazar, but uh, he allowed it. The Rabbi Chet one time explained that what the Gemara means to say, let's take the case of David 
when it says that um, whoever says he sinned, it means to say that he didn't violate things. You, you can't imagine that David Melech, who was the Mashiach Hashem, just broke the halacha. I mean, he just uh, he saw a married woman and he was attracted and he just brought her over and had relations with her. You can't, uh, well, what kind of, and how would they let him get away with that? I mean, that's a serious uh, error. But but they explained that from a halakhic point of view, she was permitted to him because the soldiers used to give divorces before they went off to war and so on and so forth. So that's what they meant. He didn't violate the halacha. Okay. And maybe that's why he had a certain sense that it was all right. The Navi comes and condemns him. So if why would the Navi, if the intent of the Gemara was to say that he didn't really sin, so why would the Navi come and condemn him? And why would he say chatasi? Because it meant from the moral point of view, the mere, this is a very important teaching. The mere fact that you can find a heta for something, that something is not halakhically prohibited, doesn't mean it's okay to do it. Yep. You could do the worst things. You could cheat people in business. The, the halakh is structured in, certain, in such a way that there's always, if you're smart enough, you can get around it. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, you could do the terrible, terrible things, but you didn't do, oh, okay, I'll show you the halakh. That doesn't make it moral. In fact, it's much, much worse because when you act like that, it's a chalashem. Wow, this person is manipulating Jewish law to um, uh, permit him to do all of his perversions. Wow. So that's uh, So what the chachamim are actually doing is they're trying to tell you that it, it's it's deeper than just a just a blanket violation. It was something that he could have talked himself into, and they're trying to teach us that nevertheless, that is a sin. Uh -huh. That is sin. Yeah. That's how you exactly. That that harmonizes the Gemara with the Tanakh. The Tanakh right. is saying sin, very serious sin. The Gemara is saying no. Oh, of course they're they're coming from that angle. And the the lesson, the takeaway is that just because something is mutter halachically doesn't mean you're allowed to do it, and you could be doing the the, the worst possible errors in the world with with a with a hechsher. Yeah. I mean, it's what the Ramban. The Ramban has this concept of manuvo bershus Torah. Yeah. Someone who lives disgustingly with the permission of it. That is to say, you know, you could be a playboy and you could have these lavish feasts and, and, and drinking and parties and even women. There are ways that a person can have lots and lots of women, sexual gratification, and they didn't violate halakha. That is a maneuver. <laughs> you know, just because it has a, a seal of approval, just because there's a hachshara on it, doesn't make it a mitzvah at all. That's, that is the, um, and unfortunately, you do find that trend also. You do find that trend uh, as Jews have become wealthier and more prosperous. And um, you see um, excursions, Passover tours going here, there, and this excess, tremendous excess of uh, food and wine. And uh, it's the kid, even in the kiddish clubs, you know, that became a phenomenon. And no, you can't just drink regular scotch. Now it's got to be there, it's got to be single malt. And it's, you, you see that trend. To indulge, and the more we're able, yeah, because we we have more availability of foods like pizza. I mean, uh, I remember a time when there was no kosher pizza. Okay, and I'm not coming out against it. I'm just saying that illustrates the idea that there's a lot of things that are available today. Jews have access today to all the pleasures of the hedonistic world. This is an important lesson around Hanukkah time. Hanukkah has begun here in Israel, and um, the Hellenists versus the Maccabees. And what does Hellenism represent? What kind of a way of life is that? And have we fallen prey to a certain extent to that whole way of thinking and that whole way of living? Are we sort of trying to incorporate a little bit of that into the 
structure of our, our orthodox uh, life. These are very, very important things to ponder. Absolutely. So what, what do you have to say about the trend, let's say, in, let's say the Hasidic movement where they venerate, um, you know, the, the saints? Like, how, what what would you answer to that approach, like, of, of looking at these? Rebbe's? Yes. Uh, I think that's, I don't want to speak about, you know, any particular group. And of course not, of course not. Hasidim that um, keep the halacha, keep the mitzvahs, and they go to their Rebbe because they get wisdom and so on and so forth. That's fine. But where it reaches the point that he's not a human being anymore, and there's veneration, and he's a miracle worker, I think that's contrary to Judaism. Uh, I don't know that there's, there's no such thing as a miracle worker. Okay? Yeah, the miracle workers today are those that, uh, you know, the scientists and doctors that discovered these cures, but they're they're using rationality. It's not a, it's not a magical thing. <laughs> so I think they save many more lives, right? They save many more lives, and they can put a man on the moon and so on and so forth. I don't think a miracle worker can do that. Uh, I, I don't... Um, believe he said because man doesn't have supernatural powers we're, we're just we're created beings and, and we have natural we have natural to the extent that we use our intelligence our talents etc to manipulate the laws of nature which god has given us the ability to do to that extent there's progress in terms of man moshe rabbeinu did he do great miracles no it was hashem that did it through through the agency of moshe so I'm not saying a Rebbe, theoretically, somebody can come along and, and he could do miracles, but, that, but that's not because he has any powers. It's only because then, then it would be that Hashem spoke to him. So then he'd have to prove it. <laughs> Where's the proof? You know, when Moshe went down to Mitzrayim and he had this whole, this, for seven days, he was arguing with God. He didn't really want to do it. And finally he said, okay, um, so I know that now you told me the name of God to tell them, okay, but they'll say, they won't believe me. I need proof. So Hashem gave him signs. Hey, you know, he took the um, staff and it uh, turned into a snake. And, and then his hand with the leopard. And then the water and so forth. If, you don't, if they don't believe you for these two, here's another one. So Moshe was saying that I'm just going to accept it. Oh, really? Moshe Rabbeinu, they, if he claimed that he had um, powers, miraculous powers, they would say prove it. That, that to me, indicates that you're not obliged to accept the fact that somebody... Well, that's the truth if a, if a person claims to be a Navi. Every other religion, uh, if he's charismatic, they accept him. Judaism, the Ramon goes through the whole thing. Rigorous. He's, it's a rigorous trial. Very, very rigorous. You very can't prove... And, and there's a danger. You're going you're gonna to label yourself as a false prophet. You have to prove it. First of all, you have to be on an extremely high level of perfection and so on and so forth. Secondly, we want proof. So before Martin Torah, according to the Ramah, you have to perform something which is contrary to the laws of nature, a miracle. And after the Ramah holds that after Martin Torah, they demanded that he predict certain things. Not just once, a number of times, and it has to come true 100%. Yeah, this, reminds, me of, this reminds me of the James Randi experiment. Yeah. Where, uh, you know James Randi? I think so. He they said he could debunk any any yeah. uh, He offered a million dollars for anyone who can prove that they have a supernatural power. He offered a million dollars. Um, how many people ended up trying? Many people tried and everyone failed. Never. He actually tried to test this, <laughs> and uh, it didn't it didn't go very well for them. Um, but what, what, what I find you know interesting, I tell people it's kind of like even you see among Jews today. It's, it reminds me of the time of uh, Eliyahu Navi, where the people were 
simultaneously um, worshiping Hashem and also Baal, right? So wh why was this happening? Because they want to cover their tracks. So it's kind of like today where people, they'll go to like a Kabbalist to kind of, yeah, they're hedging their bets. They'll go to a Kabbalist to keep them healthy, to make sure nothing bad happens to them. But the moment they're suffering a heart attack, they're not driving to the Kabbalist. They're going to the emergency room to go to the rational people, the doctors. Yeah. I I have the same, the same book here in Israel. I mean, the Haredi population in Israel, they get tremendous support from the government. I mean, that's, that's an issue. I mean, it causes a lot of resentment. Uh, in fact, they just gave a raise for soldiers in the army, and then they, they demanded like a similar raise for the Haredi fellows that sit and learn Torah. So, okay, fine. But at the same time, there's not the slightest expression of gratitude. They yeah, will not have an Israeli... They won't say... They won't say Mr. Baruch for his chayalim. Are you serious? Yeah. These said uh, these fellows are out there. They're most are nefesh. They're protecting you, uh, and you wouldn't even say Mr. Baruch. That's too much. That that amazes me. And I wonder. Oh no, because they maintain the idea that we're protecting. Our learning is protecting the country. Okay, I'm not going to start. Fine, fine, fine. But if God forbid there is an attack. So who do you call? Do you call some yeshiva guys to sit and learn, or do you call the soldiers? In there? <laughs> you know, come on. Uh, that that type of that Magical. kind of an approach, that attitude, though. Aside from that, that's part of the problem. That's why ordinary people, secular people, are totally turned off. Yeah, yeah. How can you respect this? This is the religion. This is what God has given you. People that behave in this way. Okay, so don't take any money then. You're not going to say thank you. Don't take the money. Don't don't condemn the. I mean, it's the yeah. state. The money is coming from the state, from the taxes of other people whose sons go in the army and fight and protect you, enable you to sit and learn, enable you to go to the hotel. So <laughs> the zealousness that's that that's being employed is it's it's sometimes even inhumane. It's it's mind boggling, you know how how could that be that we don't appreciate our soldiers? Like how it's it, it's truly incredible how we've gotten to such a point. It's it's it, it's mind boggling. And I don't, I don't believe that does not, to me, represent the true ideal of Avram Avinu and the Avos and the Gedolim and Rav Moshe Feinstein and up to this day, the genuine Rav Soloveitch, the great, the genuine Gedolim, yeah, would never approve something like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And for the last question, in the story of Yosef and his brothers, which happens to be where we're where we're at at the moment. You make the statement that it illustrates the unique nature of the Jewish people and the secret of its history. What is it about this story in particular that you feel so strongly about it? And what does this what does what does this teach us about optimism and faith? Yeah, I mean, there's many aspects. It's what, probably my favorite uh, story in the entire Torah, and I've given so many shirim on that. Um, it's it's endless, but I just to focus on something. There's tremendous hope when you think about it, how, what a low point they represented the Jewish people at that point in time, what a low point they had reached, the misunderstanding, and they were prepared to kill Yosef and just the last second, okay, we won't kill him, they'll take him out, they'll sell, sell him as a, a slave in Egypt, which pretty much means his life is over in terms of him achieving anything. And you see the effect, the, the, the rise of Yosef. Yosef was not destroyed by that. You think about that. You're 17 years old. You've just gone through this thing with your own brothers. 
And now you find you're in a strange country. You don't even know the language. And you're a, a lowly every where they look down upon Jews. And wouldn't you just fall apart? That's what the brothers thought would happen. But he retained his amun and HaKadosh Baruch And he retained his composure. And he did not allow himself. He names one of his children after that, that he didn't, he, God allowed him to forget. You see, you got, at that point in time, if you, if, if you can't forget, if you can remember, here it is, it's Friday night, you remember Friday night, I'm with my family, I'm at the table, ah, you, you can't function. He was able to put that aside and live in the present and work his way up. And with the help of Hashem, Hashem gave him the opportunities. And then he fell into jail again with the, the incident. With the, he never lost that emunah in Hashem, that belief that if he acts properly and he retains his relationship with God, the situation will improve, which it did. And then he goes on to great heights. He goes on, then the second aspect of the story is, he's now like pretty much the, he's the ruler of all of Egypt, the ruler of the world, basically. And now he encounters the brothers again. And he forgoes the, any, any um, attempt to get even, to take revenge. Whatever he did, he did because he had to do those things to bring them to, to Shuvah. But when the Shuva of the brothers was accomplished, he reunites with them and he forgives them. He is the hero of forgiveness. The ability of that family to come together again after that division, that is so inspiring. The ability for Yosef to overcome whatever anger he might have and to forego revenge and instead to embrace them and I'm come down because of the famine and I will support you and sustain you. That is uh, the most inspiring thing. That gives us hope. That's what hopefully will happen in that Yemosa Mashiach that um, the Jewish people will finally come together. will finally come together and recognize the truth of Torah and be able to get over all of the petty div divisiveness that separates us. That, that's, as I said, there's many aspects to the story, but th those are the highlights, which I find extremely uh, relevant and inspiring. Rabbi Sachs, um, I think in Covenant and Conversations, I think he says that, the forgiveness that um, that Yosef has for his brothers, he frames it as the first act of forgiveness ever recorded in human history. Literally, the first act of forgiveness ever recorded in human history. That's it always stuck in my mind. It always stuck in my mind. He that chapter he he differentiates between uh, forgiveness and uh, maybe different types of uh, reconciliations, but. Um, it's just, it's such a powerful and incredible story. Um, I think that it's also the story of Yosef is something really important when it comes to our kids. It's a very relatable story. It's a story that, you know, kids can can really learn from in a much, much more direct way than maybe some other stories that you have to a little bit peel out the layers. This one is just so like, it hits, you know what I mean? Yeah, it has all the drama. Exactly. It has all the, the drama. Favorite, parental all the... favoritism, sibling rivalry, right. um, envy, and uh, so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's really, um, I, I would say, the, uh, of all the stories, this one is more um, appealing, I would say, to ordinary curiosity and ordinary uh, human interest and so on and so forth. I agree. It's extremely, the, you know, the end when they reveal, he reveals himself to his brothers. It's such an emotional... Uh, scene that like you, it, very few places in the Torah where you actually like get moved, you're moved, you're, you're, you're brought to like tears almost. The only well, that's exactly, excuse Sorry. me, but exactly 
I remember when I was a kid. So I went to Yeshiva Torvadas, elementary school, and it was still in Williamsburg. I don't know if you're familiar with the with Brooklyn. Uh, you know, most of the Rebbe's were from old school Europe, you know, and they were very harsh. They, they you would hit, you'd get corporal punishment and so on and so forth. But we had this one Rebbe in third grade. He was very the sweetest individual. He was more like a modern, uh, you know, Rebbe's. And every Friday, now imagine, I had never, I didn't know the stories of the Torah. This is my first time being exposed. And he, I think he called it Jewish history, but every week he'd give the capsule of that Parsha. So I really got caught up. He was a great storyteller. And I got caught up, especially in the story of Yosef and the brothers. And they sold them. I, I, it hit me every week. And then, you know, installments. And I was looking forward to Friday. And what's going to happen to Yosef? And then, you know, what happens? And he becomes the looter. And then the brothers are coming down. And Yosef is there. And, he, and I'm assuming that it's all going to be reconciliation. Oh no, he, I, what's he doing? Why is he acting strange? And, and then further, this, that. and finally, when that scene, I, I burst out crying with that scene. I remember as a kid. Wow. That, that's, that's the impact as a little third grader in yeshiva. That's the effect it had on me. Maybe that's the reason why over the years that's become such a, that story of Yosef and the Brothers has become such a uh, rich source, you know, like constantly studying and looking for new uh, nuances and ideas. Amazing. Rabbi Man, we are honored to be able to be a mouthpiece towards uh, the wisdom that you're that you're sharing, and uh, we appreciate so much the time that you that you took to be able to do this to do this with us. Have a shavua tov, shavua tov and, and you mazal tov for your son. Thank mazal you very tov. much. Thank you very much. I don't know if it's appropriate if you do this. If you could say, um, maybe show them the book and say a couple of words about the book. And I have others that are available. Or if you don't do it, fine. I'm just um, the book so, is at his house. Yeah, we're at, at my, my house. We're at his house. But <laughs> but if you want, we can plug. You can plug your book as well. So let yes, me let, please. let me just uh, let's just pause for a second, and then I'll I'll say. Yeah. Okay. Um. So before we go, um, your book, eternally yours. Uh, you want to tell the audience about. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I have, this is a collection of my Dibre Torah um, on all of the parashiyas of the Torah. So right now we have on Bereshis, that's the one, this is the one on Bereshis, Shamos, Bayikra, and Bamidra, and we're, we're working on Devarim. So that's not available yet. Um, if you like this approach, these are, I take a lot of care in terms of writing there. You've read them, you you know, yes. they're uh, very readable. Very. And uh, you could turn to any Parsha, and I think you'll find it enjoyable for, for teachers or you want to say something at the table and so on and so forth. So they're available on Amazon. And uh, again, eternally yours, God's greatest gift to mankind. And uh, on the bottom it says, you know, Torah's enduring relevance for a life of wisdom. And this one is on um, Beratius. So if anybody's interested, yeah, they're not difficult to get. And uh, and I'll say this about it because there there are some obviously there's some books on the Parshiot that are like very very you know complex and 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 very difficult to read sometimes. Academic. Academic. This to me was is it was so good because I can read it straight to my children and it's palatable. It's it's something that they can digest. Mm. Um, your your way of expressing things very simply 
like where Judaism demystified, demystifying is to take complex issues and, and simplify them. So uh, we can appreciate what you're doing because the way you wrote your book is in that way that everybody can enjoy it. Anybody can benefit from it. So we thank you. And uh, we hope to do this again one day. My pleasure. Thank you all very much. Thank and have you. a happy Hanukkah. You too. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.